listening to the Wheel of Time TV podcast with Jay and Colin. Welcome back to Ranland. You're listening to Season 3, Episode 2. I'm your corrupted Amerlin, the one and only Jay. This season, we'll be covering all things Wheel of Time on Prime, so look out for new episodes of Randland Weekly. This season, each podcast will begin with a spoiler-free TV episode breakdown. We'll also be discussing film craft and critical reviews. But book fans, stay tuned. For the second portion of each show, we'll be joined by the fearsome Tigrain to discuss full-on spoilers. Tigrain will spill the tea on what fans are saying in social media, and we'll get some hot takes from the queen of Twitter herself. Now, without further ado, let's welcome your Mahal, my co-host, Colin, as we explore this next turning of the wheel. Welcome, hey Colin. How's it going? <laughs> it's going well. Did you have a good Beltine? Um, I did. I had a great Beltine. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so freaking excited to talk about this episode. I mean, um, yeah, this is this is a great episode. So. <laughs> so, you know, just last week we had our viewing party of the premiere where we watched episodes one through three. And since then, there have been a lot of reviews that have been released. And they were a bit mixed. There was definitely ample criticism from certain outlets. So my question for you is, did you have any sort of concerns or expectations going into watching episode four? Right. Um, I had kind of, so I had already kind of heard that episode four was was like a doozy of an episode, um, kind of like through the grapevine. So I was, I was expecting like something big to happen, you know? Um, so that was that was kind of just a general expectation that I had, um, but I also knew that we. I mean, I guess we all knew that from the end of episode three that um, the Logan was introduced. So I was looking to see. I was anticipating and looking forward to see how they'd expanded that arc specifically, um, and how they were using that arc to kind of add like more texture to the world pretty early on. Awesome. Well, I think that's a pretty good segue for going into our spoiler-free breakdown. So one thing we've seen so far is that each Wheel of Time episode starts with a cold open. And thus far, it has a pretty solid track record uh, between Avon Valda's witch burning and Nanive's epic trollic slaughter. They're definitely keeping us on our toes. And I think this episode definitely delivers. So we open the episode on the burning city of Gaeldon. Uh, we see a stone city of blue top towers set into a forested hillside. And we get a bird's eye view of soldiers running, fighting along the top of a massive fortress. So before any, you know, actual plot happens, I just wanted to say that I actually thought this opening shot was kind of significant for the show um, because it's the first city we've seen outside of Shatter Lagoth, which is defunct. Um, and because we're getting an overhead view, like the way this, they're establishing this shot, it gives us a grander sense of scale than we've gotten from the show. Everything we've seen has been filmed very like intimately. And also the setting is like grittier. There's smoke and sand blowing everywhere. The colors are more neutral. The soldiers are must up. So it feels more grounded and more accessible to non-fantasy fans was like my immediate thought off the bat. Mm -hmm. 
And so after we get this establishing shot, enter Loghain. Uh, he's just nonchalantly striding along the parapets toward two frightened guards who are desperately trying to protect their king. And this is the first time we see male channeling. Mm-hmm. So thoughts thoughts on this uh, opener, Colin? Uh, I thought it was great. I thought it was, um, like you said, I thought it was a good um, kind of entryway into like the cities of this of this uh of this world you know like we haven't seen one quite yet or at least nothing to this scale um so that was exciting um on top of seeing male channeling so i think like you know there are several things that 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 brings um aside from just the excitement of of a book fan um (laughs) uh the way that it's represented you know like actually physically seeing or you know visually seeing the the physical manifestation of those weaves was pretty thrilling i'd say yeah and i i know this is something you mentioned is that uh while he's channeling his hands are just by his side um which so far in the series we've seen moraine uh, channel and have very elaborate sort of gestures, which uh, you actually mentioned in our original discussion that you weren't a huge fan of. So mm-hmm. it's interesting, the first time we see a male channeler, his hands are just by his side, and it seems like he's controlling these pretty powerful weaves just with his mind. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, that's something that I, I definitely picked up on, especially as like in contrast to like what we saw from Moraine, like specifically in episode one. Um, and I, I wasn't in love with that. Like, um, so it was nice to see a difference. And, and I liked seeing that difference for several reasons because it shows obviously the difference between, um, you know, a trained channeler and, and perhaps a, a quote unquote wilder or an untrained channeler. Um, also, it shows a certain degree of attention to detail from the production team. And so much as there, this has to be some sort of deliberate decision that they're making. So I actually have a lot more to say about that a little later. Um, but yeah, I did pick <laughs> up on that for sure. I bet. Cool. Um, I also, I just want to say, I thought it was great how he's just like very chill, like gliding mm-hmm. toward them, like like a horror villain, you know, where everyone's yeah. scrambling, but he's just taking his sweet time. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, it's so, really effective. <laughs> obviously, he you know channels his way past these pathetic guards uh, and pursues the king into the corner, um, and they have an exchange. Um, and so very quickly, I think, I think this, first of all, was a very effective scene. I thought the writing of the dialogue was good and that mm-hmm. we learned so much about this character and who he is in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I just thought it was strong. Um, so and, any thoughts there? Otherwise, I can continue. No, I, thought, I agree with you. I thought it was very strong. And that was something I was specifically looking at. And in terms of like how like what kind of how quickly can they deliver um, these bits of information that are crucial to understanding what this world is like and who this character is and what 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 this character means what this person means Logan specifically but also the idea of the dragon reborn right um, yeah. and I think it was I think it was very effective for sure yeah so the king you know falsely assumes that Logan is there to usurp the throne and become the king of Gildon and uh Logan's truly believes he's the dragon reborn and said says what is a throne to the dragon reborn and he also says the Aes Sedai should be following me not fighting me mm-hmm. and then you know the king tries to stab him he you know restrains him with the one power forcing him to drop the dagger and forcing him to his knees and then in and then 
<laughs> pause there, we hear voices. Mm -hmm. So do you want to describe the scene, Colin? Yeah. So like Loghain is, as he's having this conversation with, uh, with the King, um, he begins to have this side conversation with, with these kind of disembodied voices. And shortly we see uh, these representations. I think online they've been called the taint puppets. That's what they've been labeled. Um, <laughs> I don't know yes. if you've seen that, but yeah. <laughs> so we see like these taint puppets that are like CG rendered um, kind of like uh, personalities or like people like they kind of, they're kind of shaped like people. They look kind of like silhouettes of um, there are two of them. There's one on the left and one on the right, a man and a woman apparently. And they're kind of like, he's having conversations with them and they're informing him of telling him what he should and shouldn't do and what he should be worried about and kind of playing into his anxieties and fears, but also kind of, they're, they're kind of like Lady Macbething him is what I had the thought when I was yeah. watching it. It was like, they're, they're totally like Lady Macbething him, like in his ear, um, telling him like, he's the best, he's the greatest. He doesn't have to worry about these people, all these things. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I thought it was, it's really, really good. It's really effective. And it's, it's something that like, I, I, I think that we were all kind of wondering how they might represent this kind of this thing, this taint situation. Um, and I was very pleased with this. I thought it was a very good representation. It seems really interesting. Um, and I think it's something that can be built upon. Like, I don't think this is the end all be all of what this representation looks like. I think this is just the beginning. Agreed. Yeah. I think, um, uh, I was really pleased with the visual effects of this and the way they personified these voices. Um, also just on a plot note, they say to him, um, I mean, they're feeding into his sort of paranoia, but they say, this man's going to betray you just like your family, your mother, your mm -hmm. father, your these siblings. Um, mm -hmm. And so that gives us a little bit insight into the history that, you know, he was abandoned by his family. And um, yeah, that could play into to his state of mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. Cool. So then, uh, you know, against the voice of what the voices are telling him in his mind, he chooses to heal the king and release the, the bonds of air that he's wrapped in. Um, mm -hmm. And then we get this wonderful sound bite. There's a place for anyone but my side. Even my enemies. The last dragon broke the world. But I plan to bind it. You know, I mean, I think this is really important. He's letting us know his intentions. He's obviously not completely mad um, that he has like a plan. He wants to be a leader. He wants to fulfill the prophecy. He doesn't want to break the world. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe there's some hope for him at this point. We don't, you know, we don't know. Right. I mean, I, I liked this also because I think it reveals the stakes for a, a male channeler, but also the dragon reborn himself in so much as this is what they have to contend with. And aside from the 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 outside kind of um, struggles of like, you know, having to deal with this king who thinks he's trying to kill him and usurper's throne, or, you know, a family who has disowned him, he has to deal with these uh, these inner voices who are playing to his own insecurities and anxieties and paranoia. Um, and so it's, it's effective in showing that, but also showing that um, this particular character, Loghain, has the, the willpower to overcome those voices, right? Um, so it kind of shows like that inner struggle that that we 
come to see a little bit later in the series. Awesome. So that concludes the cold open. Uh, So after the wonderful title sequence, then we actually launch into the episode. The episode opens on the Aes Sedai encampment in the forest. And uh, we see Nanave and Lan share uh, a glance. (laughs) And then (laughs) we quickly enter a tent for the greens where we see uh, Karini Sedai, who is healing Maureen's uh, nasty trollic wound. And we get we get a little exchange here, and it's the first time we're meeting this new Aes Sedai. Uh, so yeah, thoughts thoughts on this, Colin? Um, yeah, I thought it was it was uh, an interest, interesting scene. I really liked all of the Aes Sedai camp stuff. I thought it was in general. I thought it was all really fascinating, and they did a great job of giving us boatloads of information very quickly, and a lot of it without dialogue. Um, so I thought this was really just like. It was good. I was intrigued. I was like all in. I was ready to learn mm-hmm. everything they had to tell me, you know? Yeah. Uh, my In my notes, I wrote, holy fuck, can we talk about the furnishings and the quality of the tents? So yeah, money. Seriously. It's so yeah. money. I'm it like, really how? Is. I know there's seven full Aes Sedai here. How many servants did they bring to carry all that shit? Like, <laughs> no, it's true. I thought about it. every time they go, every time like we enter that scene when it's like closing in a moraine, like on the cot, I'm like, God, like, look at all this lavish shit. Like, and like it's just a random tent it's not even like in the tower or anything yeah but yeah it's good yeah um so we meet uh Karin Sarai and uh one thing that I liked is that you know uh physically personality wise temperament she's so different than Moraine and uh we start to get a sense that their Aes Sedai contain multitudes that while they're a community, they're also individuals uh, with their own goals, their own personalities. They're not all like Moraine because uh, we really don't know too much about them at this point. Um, mm-hmm. And the point of the scene really is that they can have this exchange to emphasize how strong Loghain is, um, mm-hmm. that they're having to shield daily. So that brings us into the cave where Alana and Leandrin are holding Loghain's shield while he is in uh, this little prison birdcage that they've designed for him. Um, Corrine also uh, explains that she sets wards in the event that Loghain's army could return to try to, uh, you know, rescue him. So Mm -hmm. warning, warning. I'm sure that's in there for a reason later in the episode. Um, And in this scene, we see that Leandrin is arguing because she believes that they have the right to gentle Loghain on the spot and that, you know, Tarvalon, the White Tower, is hundreds of miles away. You know, uh, they should just gentle him rather than go through this arduous journey of shielding him, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, all the way back to the tower. Yeah, so... We're meeting all sorts of Aes Sedai, Alana a green, Leandrin a red, who we've seen briefly, gentling a man in the wild in the first scene of the first episode, so we know mm-hmm. what she's about. Uh, any any impressions you'd like to share on this scene? Um, yeah, what I, what I liked about this scene, and this is a little later in the scene, is like, after, is the relationship between Moraine and Alana. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, I really liked the way that that kind of is more fleshed out, you know? Um, and it's really nice to see, I think it kind of humanizes Aes Sedai in general, 
um, specifically Moraine because she's the only one we really know so far. Um, the kind of friendly banter, the kind of um, almost like girlhood memories, you know, like when they were novices. Um, it's nice. It was nice to see that and to see that like they're not necessarily just all business. Like they they have, you know, they have like little fr- frivolities like regular people do, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really nice. I really I really enjoyed seeing that. And it made me, it was interesting to be endeared toward Alana so quickly. Um, and also uh, it made me excited to perhaps understand her a little deeper than, than we get to in the books, mm-hmm. like in the future, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess jumping in a little bit, there are multiple scenes in the cave and later Alana and Moraine are holding the shields. Oh. Um, and I also, yeah, I really liked that exchange. Uh, I wrote Alana's devious energy is electric. The way she says it's like holding a cat in a bath made me wet. <laughs> Her voice is very <laughs> playful and mischievous. <laughs> Seriously, like the way she says, oh, please, one woman yeah. would never do. And she has this like little mm, after I, I could never. My voice is incapable of being that coy and sexy <laughs> yeah no it's true she's like she's got it down for sure like i 100 percent believe that uh, that you know alana is mm-hmm. about that life <laughs> so to <Yeah>. speak <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. yeah i i also um i you know in a show that has had criticism for just having too much story, too much exposition, constantly explaining things. I think that one thing this episode does well is start to um, educate audiences on the differences between the Ajas. So, you know, this scene, you know, there's a joke about being blue and, Mm -hmm. you know, a joke about being green and having multiple warders. You know, obviously we know what the Reds are about, hunting men who can channel. And also it seems like they're also in charge of like sort of upholding tower law. Like it's sort of insinuated that there's well, it's yeah. kind of said. I feel like it's yeah. straight up said, yeah. actually. I think yeah. they actually like expanded that role mm-hmm. of the Aja, um, which I thought was interesting and in so much as like like it's intriguing, but I don't necessarily like it. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, okay, they're cops, which they're the cops, basically, you know. Yeah. Like, like, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm like, okay. Um yeah. I get it. <laughs> I can appreciate that, but I still don't like them, which is like, fine. <laughs> uh, so while we're touching on this scene in the cave with uh, Moraine and Alana when they're holding the shield, we do see them. I don't know if they relax or Loghain pushes as sort of like testing them. But there's a mm-hmm. point where they're both standing up after their little banter and they have to sort of like reseal the shield. And we see mm-hmm. Loghain's... Uh, power the male power like the black weaves pushing against the sort of cage of sidar that they're forming and mm-hmm. one thing that i thought was interesting is that their choreography of alana and moraine like is completely in sync like not just yeah. their hand gestures but their like body language so yes. it's like very clear that they're all trained in the weaves to perform them like exactly the same at least like these weaves you know what those I mean? weaves like, yeah exactly like yeah. drilled into them yeah um, it's a very specific and like important weave i'm sure you know mm-hmm. in that way yeah and the fact that he was able to push against the two of them is kind of al- alarming mm-hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. But, but then we get we do get this wonderful sound bite from alana 
When I chose green, I thought it was so heroic. The battle larger. Warriors strained to defend humanity from the Dark One at the last battle. But I never thought I'd see it myself. There have been false dragons before. Women and men who've claimed the title for power or personal gain. False and all. His strength is more than anything I've ever seen. It's just another sign. The end of this age is here. Which would mean, like, the last battle is coming and the dragon reborn is coming. So right. I think that's interesting. Yeah, I think there's another um, line shortly after that, actually, where um, Moraine kind of retorts and she says, um, you know, if the last battle is coming or if the end of the age is coming, I'm glad to have your strength, which I liked because it, mm-hmm. it introduces the idea of, of strength and the one power within, you know, within these factions, um, which I don't think is necessarily something we've really looked at yet. Um, but I, other than also earlier in the scene when, or earlier in the episode, when Corinna says it, that only, um, three Aes Sedai in the camp were able to hold Loghain. Mm. Is it not? It's Leandrin, Corinna, um, and, uh, Alana are the only three who are strong enough to hold him. Just the two of them. Yeah. So that was interesting. No, definitely. I mean, I think this episode definitely plays up like the differences in strength, uh, even, you know, in the earlier scene when uh, Karina's uh, healing Moraine, Moraine mm-hmm. says, you've held back battles. Like, this tiny wound shouldn't make you exhausted. And she's right, like, right, no, right. I've been holding him. So strength is definitely a player. Not all channelers are created equal. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't we uh, switch gears then and talk a little bit about... Uh, I. Th- Tell me, tell me how you say it. I've heard them say like Kareen and like Kareeni Sedai. I, I like. I feel like it was different throughout the episode, and I was like, "Wait, what Uh-oh. is that?" But when I, I put, feel when I put captions on, it was like Kareeni. <laughs> when, uh, well, I mean, when Moraine says it the first time, I think she says Kirina Sedai. Mm-hmm. Kirina, um, okay. Yeah. So, Karen, like, yeah, Kirina. I think it's like Kirina. the. Yeah, that's what I think it was. Exactly. Okay. Um, yeah. But I mean, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, we get a few interstitial scenes in between the cave action. We get Lan and Stepin having sword practice, mm-hmm. um, which was fun. I don't know. I thought it was fun. Um, I, I guess what I found entertaining was seeing this sort of not a gender reversal, but like the women are obviously in power and the men mm-hmm. who are serving them are kind of gossiping and gathering intel for their eyes to die. You know what mm. I mean? Um, mm. And I also appreciated Stefan saying uh, Neneve is probably stubborn as a mule, which mm-hmm. is language from the books used to describe Eamon Fielders. Um, and in this scene, the takeaway also is that the Emerlin seat the ruler of the Aes Sedai uh, is not well pleased with Lan and Moraine and wants to mm-hmm. recall them to the White Tower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. 
We also get a little bit of comic relief uh, when uh, Stefan and his Aes Sedai, uh, I can't say it, uh, talk about how stoic and tight-lipped Moraine and Lan are. It's hard having a conversation with someone who won't say anything. Lan is just as bad when he wants to be. Can you imagine the dinner? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was funny. Yeah, I really liked that part of this episode. Um, is I mean, obviously, it's very much about the Aes Sedai and teaching us like what that whole order is about. But I really liked seeing the different dynamics um, in contrast to Moraine and Land. Um, so we as an audience can understand that, like, you know, there is a specific relationship here, but those dynamics can be different within those relationships depending on you know who they are. Um, mm-hmm. So I liked seeing like um, solidifying the dynamic between Moraine and Land, um, as well as seeing contrasting that with the dynamic between Corinna and Stepan, um, and even further contrasting that to the, the relationship between Alana, Yvonne, and Maxim, right? Um, so they're all very different. Um, and it was really cool to kind of see those nuances, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess let's talk about those those scenes as like a follow-up. Um, I think just like indirect parallel, since Stepan and uh, Sadai were talking about Lana Moraine, I actually really enjoyed the scene where Lan goes to Moraine's tent Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's like a moment of silence and he anticipates what's on her mind. And we see, we see very quickly that they are tunnel visioned. They have a mission that is Mm -hmm. pretty much all they are focused on. He knows that, you know, Moraine never leaves sight, loses sight of that. Um, and yeah, I just, I also like how he's kind of like a sounding board for Moraine. You know, he gathers information when she starts to like doubt herself. Um, I right. think he's like a voice of reassurance. And then uh, we see Moraine being vulnerable a little bit, mm-hmm. you know? And I really like the line where, you know, Lan says, I shouldn't have had a drink. You always get emotional when I drink. Right. Um, right. Ex- expanding <laughs> on the water bond from what we know and how it right. can affect them, which is mm-hmm. interesting. And crucial. Um, I think also, like, there's a question that he asked, and I wanted to see what you thought about this question. Um, so he asks... It's like the, his second line when he enters that scene. Um, he asks if Logan is as strong as Egwene. Why do you th- why do you think oh. he asks that? She must have mentioned it to him after she tested Moraine or tested Egwene in the woods. Mm-hmm. Well, I, obviously, you know they've said that she thinks one of the Aemon's fielders uh, could be the Dragon Reborn, and she mm-hmm. Egwene is the one who has emerged as being able to channel and obviously showed strength and promise. So Mm -hmm. probably comparing them. Fair Um, enough. Yeah. It must be interesting. I I wonder what the feeling is of like strength in the male uh, power versus like women. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, I don't know. I thought it was an interesting line. So yeah, I think you're right though. I think that's, that's why the comparison. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it was intriguing. Cool. And it stuck out to me. Yeah. So uh, right before that scene, not to jump around too much, but we see. Uh, well, I'll go. I'll go back a, a minute. We we see Lan and or we see Nynaeve hanging out. She has a chat with Leandrin. Uh, Lan comes up and interrupts them. 
Nanave says that woman's a snake. <laughs> Are all women from the White Tower a snake? Um, and uh, rightly, Nanave chooses to have dinner with the warders instead of the Red Aja, which brings us to this really fun campfire scene where mm -hmm. we learn about warders and their Aes Sedai. And I, I enjoyed this scene. Like, I think that it was a successfully buried the exposition of learning about this world. And we, me, um, Maxim, and do you say Yvonne or Ivan? Ivan? I say, I say Yvonne. But Yvonne. Okay. I mean, you know, we yeah. meet Yvonne and Maxim, who are Alana's warders. And also, uh, if you didn't know, one of them is Rafe's IRL warder, <laughs> Taylor. Um, mm -hmm. But I just like their playfulness and how kind of catty they are. I felt like they were intentionally taunting Nynaeve uh, when they say, I can only imagine how Lan keeps up with Moraine. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. Nynaeve's obviously trying to like suss out and comes from a small village. So doesn't like necessarily may has probably hasn't encountered polyamory. Um, but I did want to ask like, how did you feel about seeing uh, this poly representation on screen of Alana and her warders? I fucking loved it. I thought it was <laughs> great. I thought it was great representation. It was like, you know, like it's, it's, we don't know who they are when we, when we see them on, when they first, when they're first introduced, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we do, if, if you follow the show and you know who they are, but as, as a casual watcher, you don't know who they are, you know, you know, obviously that they're warders based on the conversation, um, so it was nice to see them just kind of like casually like vibing with you with each other in that way. Um, and I think that they did a good job of non-verbally communicating so much information about that relationship. Um, the relationship between um, Maxime and Yvonne, the relationship between both of them and Alada and and uh, and the relationship between all three of them. I think there was a lot of information that was conveyed, um, like I said, non-verbally, but also verbally. There was a few there are a few questions that are, that are asked about that. And I thought it was really, really nice. Um, and it kind of immediately establishes, um, I don't know, it breaks a lot of kind of like, I think stereotypes and tropes about polyamory that we see in mainstream media. So I really liked that. I thought it was good. Yeah, it, it was pretty fucking awesome. Um, almost as awesome as Nanave's face when, <laughs> when they both leave. <laughs> And are, you know, playfully touching Alana. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. um, and then her mind immediately puts the pieces together and she starts to, it's implied, I think, that she starts to worry about what that might mean for Lan and Moraine's relationship. And right. then Lan, I think, leans into that a bit. And says, oh, absolutely. I'm a bit tired myself. And it was like, yeah. wow. Yeah, that was mean. That was a that mean was, line. It was mean, I know. Yeah, that was a mean line. I was like, wow, okay. Yeah, <laughs> priceless. Okay, uh, I think that is a good point to hop into our other characters' plot lines and catch up. So next up, let's talk about Perrin and Egwene, who have uh, been traveling with the traveling people, the Tuatha on the Tinkers, um, we get a quick interstitial scene where Perrin expresses that he's not comfortable, doesn't trust the traveling people. Um, you know, Egwene reassures him that if there's, you know, any signs and he wants to leave, they leave together. And then, of course, Aaron pops in just to be charming and jovial as fuck. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, 
that scene ends. Next, we see them traveling. They've decided to stick with the Tuathalan on their journey. Next, we see Perrin and Egwene continue their journey with uh, Ilya and Aram and Rain. They're walking along the road with all the caravans. Uh, and Ilya explains the way of the leaf to Perrin, which brings up the subject of his axe and whether or not it's uh, made his life better or worse since he picked it up. I personally found this line like a little too on the nose. The camera lingers on Perrin as he reacts and is kind of like stunned. And I just thought it was like a little heavy handed. Um, And I just kind of like found honestly some of the the tinker parts of the plot like to be a little boring. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I would agree. My note is that I felt like the Gwen and Perrin arc in this episode is is the weakest. It's the weakest Mm -hmm. arc of the episode. Um, I'm willing to forgive it. um, A, because it's a good episode. B, because I know what's going to happen. And C, because um, there's so much other stuff kind of happening and you are getting some more information, but it is, it is the weakest, undoubtedly the weakest arc of the episode for sure. Yeah. There's not much happening. Yeah. So the, the meat of this plot in the episode comes when they finally make camp. It's nighttime. Um, we get a couple little beats. We get one. Well, we got a couple with Egwene and Aram, one where they're dancing and Aram explains the meaning of the song. He also says he doesn't believe in it, uh, which is which is interesting. I do feel like there is a bit of this sort of an interesting tension to Aram where mm-hmm. he's really gregarious, always has like a smile, but he's also like fast with a, a quip or like sarcasm. Mm-hmm. And while he follows the way of the leaf, I, I don't know. I feel like I sense some sort of like, I don't know if it's like resentment, like it, it's too soon to tell, but I just feel like there's more behind his smile. If you know what well, I mean. Well, I think like that I do. Yeah. Well, I think like, I can't help but to compare it to to the novels. And I think that the actor is doing a fantastic job of talking about, in, in the novels, Ilya talks about the darkness that's beneath the surface with Aaron, Aram. Mm-hmm. And I think he's doing a good job of, of showing that. If not, you know what I mean? Like, since he can't really talk about it, he's showing it. Mm-hmm. Like, he's showing us that, like, you know, this guy is, is part of this culture and was raised this way, but there's so- he's not fully sold and there's something more to him, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is interesting, for sure. Yeah. Um, we also see him, uh, sitting down with Egwene and asking, you know, he, he can tell that there's a man on her mind and she basically just says, you know, she doesn't believe that Rand is gone, that Mm. she believes they survived, you know, is implied. Um, then we get Ilya and Perrin, um, and we get further explanation of the way of the leaf and we get a story about why, she herself chose this path. Um, you know, she explains how her daughter was senselessly killed by bandits for sport. And um, we do get, you know, a pretty powerful line from her saying, what better revenge um, to, for de- to death than life? Um, you know, and she hopes that the wheel will turn out her daughter's soul again in a more peaceful time. Yeah. Um I just, uh, to be honest, I thought that it was kind of weird that she shares this story with Perrin. Because she goes to, like, a dark place. Like, she, 
you know, you feel the emotion, the power behind the story. And mm. I just felt like I needed a, a beat from Perrin to prompt her to share this. Um, mm. It I, Like, either finding him in a moment of vulnerability, but, I mean, she can tell he's down, but he's also kind of like a stone. You, you can't read that much from him. So, I, I don't know. I, I thought there needed to be, like, another part to this exchange, um, and it just felt like story time to me, you know? I Yeah, I won't disagree with that i think i th- i'm gonna say that like i think that is um a pretty uh fair criticism of the show in general so far is that a lot of it can feel like story time um personally i like that but at the same time i recognize that it is a, a somewhat of a weakness um so i would agree with that specifically in this particular case um the the other side to that is that I think that Marie Kennedy Doyle is fucking killing it as Elia. And I think <laughs> she's like really good. Like I was, I was actually really into that scene. I agree with you that maybe there needed another beat, but like when she did with that story and that final line, I was like in it for sure. Fair um, point. And I did, I did think to myself, like, I don't love this scene, but she's fucking selling it. Like yeah, she's great. She was selling was it. Yeah. Anyone of like less caliber, I would be fast forwarding. I'm sorry. Totally. Like I just, but I, I do think it's like less of her dialogue and more that like I needed a, a prompt, something to prompt this other than mm-hmm. like, let's explain this to the viewers so they get yeah. it. And so Perrin has some sort of consolation, I guess. Totally. I mean, I think, I mean, this whole like the we- the reason why this feels like weak is it feels like Perrin is just grappling. He's just grappling with like the thing that happened, the dark thing that happened, you know, which, but like, which is fine and fair. And that makes sense that he should be doing that. Um, while, while at the same time, Egwene is kind of um, learning to kind of let go of her past and be open to the possibilities of the future. You know, um, mm-hmm. they're kind of in, they're kind of doing the opposite things, you know, um, mentally. Mm-hmm. But that's really about it. That, you know what I mean? We're not really seeing much growth from either, either of these characters, I would say, um, during this episode, which is what kind of makes it fall flat, this particular arc. Um, nothing really, I don't think, changes for them. We see some inter- some things introduced, but I don't know if we see like really much of a shift, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I agree. I don't know. Like I, I literally started questioning, like, should they be with the traveling people? Should they be doing something else? Should these scenes be adding more humor maybe? Cause it was just a little bit of a slog um, mm, yeah. without advancing much. It's just something for them to do to get to the next story beat. So it, it'll be interesting uh, to see where it goes and how it might pay off later. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I think that wraps it up on the tinkers. So mm-hmm. let's move into a more riveting plot, and that would be Matt and Rand and Tom Marilyn. So uh, last we saw them, they were escaping Breen Spring from a dark friend who Tom slew with his dagger, which was pretty awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, yeah. And it, it's interesting that this uh, story opens on the same story or a parallel story to Egwene and Perrin where they're talking about like, I don't know if we trust these people. And mm-hmm. here we see Rand turning to Matt and saying, I don't know if I trust Tom, mm-hmm. which is funny because Matt's usually the more like street smart, suspicious right. type. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, you know, Matt uh, quips, uh, like, maybe there's hope for you yet, Rand, <laughs> being skeptical. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, more importantly, Matt mentions that Dana, the dark friend, had said they were five possible dragon candidates. <laughs> and he said, who's the fifth? Um, mm-hmm. And in, in the episode, they cut back to Loghain, implying that he could he could be the fifth. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we'll see. So then uh, we see the the gang stumble upon Master Grinwell and his family's farm. They're talking about sneaking in and crashing in the barn, but they are caught. We see this tense scene where, uh, you know, uh, there's a bow and arrow pointed at them from Master Grinwell. And we see Matt reach behind him to grab something uh, in the back under his coat. Tom notices this. Uh, and Rand, being the innocent, sweet, wonderful boy he is, steps in, convinces them they're not there to do any harm. They're just some poor travelers, and they're given a barn for the night if they muck out the stalls. Mm-hmm. So while they're mucking out the stalls, Matt steps outside, and we see him be sick. Uh, so th- do you want to describe this scene, Colin? Um, yeah, so he steps outside and he kind of like sicks up and he basically sicks up like a bit of like Mashadar, the the kind of dark thing that was uh, that was kind of chasing them in uh, Shadar Logoth. Um, and you can see it kind of on his face and then it kind of recedes back into his mouth as he turns to uh, to speak to the the Grinwell child who is offering him um, a bit of food. Uh, and there's a, a quick moment in that scene where he has, he kind of is, um, confronted by his past. He's kind of confronted with the fact that he has left his sisters, um, back home. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting moment where we see Matt struggling with, um, the, the kind of, uh, the evils and the, uh, the trials of having left home and having set out on his own. Um, but also kind of regret, like the regret that he's feeling about having left his sisters, the sisters behind and kind of dealing with his traumatic past, um, as well. Um, and it was a good scene. I think the, like one of the highlights of the scene is the, the gifting of the, the small doll, um, the Brigitte doll to Matt, mm-hmm. um, from the little girl, which is a very sweet and, um, yeah, it was a very sweet moment. A very interesting and sweet moment for sure. Yeah, it was nice to get an emotional beat and recall to back home mixed yeah. in because it is moving at a very brisk pace. Mm-hmm. So you're right. It was nice to get that. So while Matt is stepping out, this leaves an opportunity for uh, Tom and Rand to connect uh, Rand quickly seems to uh, trust Tom after they ha- spend a little more time together. And Tom shares some pretty heavy suspicions that he thinks that Matt can channel and is going mad. And he sets this up by sharing the story of Owen, his nephew, who could mm-hmm. channel, was hunted and gentled by the Reds. And shortly thereafter, uh, was sitting at the dinner table. I think he said he yawns and then cuts his own throat with a steak knife. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah, pretty disturbing story. Obviously, this doesn't make Rand feel great. Mm-hmm. Um, and while Tom may be weary of Matt, I, 
we get this moment where they're going to sleep in the barn and Rand turns to Matt and lets him know that he's here for him no matter what. And I really appreciated this because to be honest, I don't think the boys are very emotionally open or supportive in the books so much. Mm-hmm. So to get this moment of like tenderness and just letting your friend know that you're there for them. I thought that was really nice and and showed a lot about Rand's character, you know, especially because he was being kind of a dick to Egwene earlier. So it's nice to see Rand right. you know, man up and, and be a good dude. No, I agree. I think that um, I really like, I was going to talk about this a little later, but I really liked seeing, uh, first I like seeing the contrast of the way that they're playing the contrast of uh, Matt's kind of arc or what he's dealing with versus the introduction of Loghain. I think that's a really wise and interesting juxtaposition. Um, as well as uh, the the way that they're kind of, the way that they've enhanced or embellished Matt's backstory and his character, um, I think is working quite well. And I like, I, I was going to, and I was going to say that leads into kind of basically what you were saying. And I like the way it, it also brings out something in Rand. It gives Rand something to kind of react against um, that shows us more of his character um, and shows him as kind of the sweet, you know, sheep herder that he is. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then uh, they go to sleep and we're brought into Rand's nightmare uh, where he is walking through Amon's field. Um, he sees Perrin uh, just hacking away with his axe. He sees uh, Egwene scream and we see the the nightmare man with the fiery eyes again the creature mm-hmm. um what did what did you think of this dream um hmm i th- actually i didn't really think much of it honestly same same i said <laughs> <Yeah>. lame <laughs> yeah lame, i didn't really think I, much yeah. of it i was just kind of like okay that happened sure yeah i, I just think if they're going to do it if, if it's needed for a story point of view, like make it scarier. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I did like the one with parrot where parents dream where he saw the wolf. The wolf. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah, he turns yeah. around. This one was, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. This dream didn't really do much for me. Um, I don't think we really learned much. Um, yeah. It didn't really do much for me. Okay. So why don't we move on to a scene that hopefully did something for you. (laughs) So uh, Rand's woken up. Tom's like, Mm -hmm. what is it? And they realize Matt is gone. Panic because they think Matt's going crazy. They Mm -hmm. run into the Grinwell's home and they see a fucking massacre. Um, Just blood, bodies everywhere. Who's standing in the middle of the great room is Matt. We see him from the back um and then the camera cuts we see his face his eyes are basically rolling back in his head we see the black stuff on his mouth retreat back into his body and he looks possessed and he's sort of staring ahead unseeing um and uh you know Rand and tom uh, immediately assume that matt has murdered everybody Mm -hmm. (laughs) in in their defense i think tom says like we gotta get him and go which was nice he wasn't just like kill him (laughs) that's true yeah yeah. yeah. i had the same thought i was like okay they're still looking out for him they didn't like 
you know, he's he's innocent until proven guilty. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Then it is revealed uh, that there's a fade. So there's a murder all lurking. Um, and I, I, I love the visual effects in this scene. I have to mm-hmm. talk about them because then we see Matt's dagger sort of like, it's like the dagger is moving his arm. It's not like he's yeah. moving the dagger and it just like swiftly like points. And then the fade comes out. And you really see the fade like moving through the shadows, gliding in an unnatural way with his two fast movements. Um, Yeah. And Tom tells them to run. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, like this dude turned out to be quite noble. I mean, yeah, he's he's a stand up guy. He's just going to risk his life for these like hayseeds he found in the. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, and we see yeah, he's Tom a stand-up guy for fade. sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. What'd you think of the fight scene? Oh, it was great. I loved it. It was fantastic. Yeah, it was yeah. a badass fight scene. Like the fade, like catches the dagger, which is awesome. Um, the way he's like kind of like is moving, like gliding back and forth. Um, the the moving through the movement through the shadows. Um, all of that I thought was fantastic. It, they really captured kind of like the the murderalness. I think. Yeah, I I will say um, this isn't a spoiler, but, you know, book fans are a little disappointed that Tom the Gleeman doesn't have like a colorful patch jacket like he does in the books. But it does have a shit ton of pockets because he was just pulling daggers. Yeah. You saw him like reach into more pockets. You're like, yeah. wow, he's got a lot of daggers. Like there's a moment, there's a moment in the editing where they like focus in for half a second on like a dagger that's stuck in the wall. There's like lodged in the wall. Yeah. And that like I don't I don't that was a weird moment for him. Like, what are they trying to show? Like, what is the purpose of that that quick second? Mm-hmm. Other than to like reveal that. Tom has a shit ton of daggers. I don't really I think, know. <laughs> I think that's the point. He's got a shit yeah. ton of daggers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to conclude this plot, uh, Matt and Rand flee. Very sadly, we recall the young daughter from earlier. Matt stops to see her corpse strewn in the middle, you know, of the farm, basically. Um, and while they're fleeing on horses, Matt drops the little Birgitta doll. Mm-hmm. just sad Birgit is not gonna see the world after all <laughs> so now we're back in the Aes Sedai camp uh we see Neneve definitely seeking Lan out uh she's traipsing through the forest and stumbles upon Lan praying and then they swap prayers of lost kingdoms mm-hmm. uh this this was like a nice point of connection a little uh meet cute and uh I like that Neneve is seeing a different side of Lan. Obviously, she says, like, you're not what I thought you were. And upon seeing him uh, praying, she shares sort of mantra or prayer that she recites from her traumatic childhood. Mm -hmm. And it's in the old tongue. So Lan translates it for her. And it says, we shall go into the land so that our children can always hold us and we'll never be alone. Uh, so yeah, I think they're super hot for each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, what'd you th- what'd you think of this little moment? I thought it was a fantastic scene. I was yeah. like f- fully absorbed in the scene. Um, I saw an, uh, someone I don't remember who it was, but um, someone on Twitter was talking about uh, that specific scene in that line when she says, "You know, you're not who I thought you were, Alan Madragoran," and the fact that she uses his full honorific title. Um, without even knowing necessarily what it means, you know, mm-hmm. and but he knows obviously, and yeah. he returned. He returns, you know. You're not. You're exactly who without you were, 
Wisdom Almira, um, which is her title. And so yeah. he's he's put her, he is choosing uh, to put her on equal grounds and so, and so much as giving her as much, you know, respect as, as she should have um, mm-hmm. in that way, which I thought was really interesting. Um, although she may not even understand the full magnitude of what, what's happening, you know, um, quite yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I mean, it is good writing because there's so much like palpable hot tension in this mm-hmm. feud, and then mm-hmm. they're interrupted by yes. Logan's army in the woods yeah, totally. being set off. So you're yeah, like, I oh know. shit. <laughs> I want to know what he thought of her. I want him to finish the line, right? Like she's got to come back and be like, okay, so what the fuck was it? Well, I think, uh, think Nave wanted to know too, as we see by the end, but we won't talk yeah, about of course. that. Yeah, <laughs> of course. But like, um, they got to get back to that. I want to know. <laughs> uh so we see Leandrin and uh Kirina face off on Tower Law back in the cave. They're talking about, you know, Leandrin saying we should gentle him. It's hundreds of miles to go. She's not wrong <laughs> in this in yeah. this instance. You know what? Leandrin might be onto something. And just as they're debating, the wards are disturbed by Logain's army. Um, and then Logain uses this. I so here's one thing I was I was wondering. How does Loghain know when it's time for him to break free? I, I feel thought like, yeah, he can't hear, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Um, and he can't channel, obviously. Um, I don't think he I, can see the wards, right? You know? No, he can't see the wards. So yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't really know. We could speculate that he has some sort of um, I mean, if we recall the books, um, Moraine hands the the kids, the boys, a token, and that lets mm-hmm. them know where they're at. So we could we could speculate that he has done the same with maybe parts members of the army, um, but I don't know. Or could there have been a spy or someone to tip him off? No one know. enters that cave. No one enters that cave. I guarantee it. Except I Sedai. Except I Sedai. Yeah. So maybe one of the I Sedai's bat. Maybe, maybe. Didn't Leandrin say, "I if he escapes, we have the right to gentle him? So I feel right. like Leandrin was hoping for this scenario. I'm just, I don't know. Potentially. Um, I mean, that's that's not, uh, yeah, that's not, uh, that wouldn't be sh- terribly shocking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. once Loghain breaks free, melts his cage, then the warders can sense that something's wrong. They got to get to the cave. They also know the army's impending. So everyone starts making their way uh, to the cave. I, I do just want to say the one visual effect that I was not a huge fan of is the cage melting. It looked mm. dumb. It looked like a video game. It just, mm. and it, and it, the camera lingers on it so long. It's like slow. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. Like everything else was so good, but I didn't. Like you see That's real interesting. fire two seconds later, and it's like that was right. very CG. That's interesting because I felt I felt differently. I felt different. Yeah. I didn't mind it. Um, it did feel very CG, but I was okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had qualms with the battle scene. Um, yeah, well, we're talking about it. Yeah, it I just off. felt like it felt a little like the special, like the, the explosions. Mm-hmm. I wanted more from them. Like, there's a very specific scene with like Alana and her two warders, and she does this cool like the leaf um, kind thing. Of, What's that? Where the leaves start rising around her and she Yeah, and they kind of like blow towards the screen and then like in the background, like they kind of everything blows up. Like I didn't love that shot. Like I wanted I wanted it to be like bigger. Mm -hmm. Um 
and and I don't know if that's a budget thing. I don't know. I don't know exactly what that is. But for me, like it didn't feel as premium as I wanted it to feel. Um, I was fine with it. I was like, okay, I understand what's happening, and that's cool. You know, um, mm-hmm. this is a, an immense power that she's wielding right now. But um, but I want it more. So yeah, I kind of felt differently. I would agree with that. I also, and this is maybe an overall note that I have issues with, is that it's too colorful. Like, hmm. I, I think it's partially how how saturated the costumes are. And mm-hmm. and I started to be on board with maybe how monochromatic the object colors are because I'm like, okay, I guess they just want like very, very clear visual distinction between them. It's like mm-hmm. an army. It's like, okay. But when you move into battle scenes and like a wood scene where there shouldn't be a lot of sunlight or anything, it felt so colorful and so saturated and bright. And mm-hmm. I was like, I just feel like this should feel colder um and less like harry potter quidditch with everyone running around like even the um gildon or the the false dragon logan's army like they were very colorful too they were they were yeah yeah and i was just like i it it doesn't feel right to me um i wish they would just desaturate everything by like 25 percent so um yeah yeah I think that's something that like, I would agree with that, but it's something that I just kind of like eventually just kind of like fell into like being fine with, you know, but, Mm -hmm. um, but I would generally agree with that. I will say that like, I remember specifically one of um, Logan's army members wearing like bright yellow. And then that's the guy that, that night of shanks, which was Mm -hmm. fantastic by the way. Oh yeah. (laughs) I was going to say like, I'm pretty sure. I, it has to be, I think, the first time Nanave has ever killed a human. She killed a trollic. Oh, trollic, I'm sure. She killed a trollic. Like, killing yeah. a human. And then we also see her. I love, I do love the shot where she's standing by the tree. And she's like in shock. Yeah. I, I wrote full Kaladin Storm Blessed level battle shock, like just panic yeah. attack breathing. Yeah. Um, she's totally in shock. Yeah. I love that yeah. she's like, but she doesn't, she does not flinch when it's time to shank that dude. She's like, oh no, we're going <laughs> to. No, she's a survivor. She survived that trolley. She's not letting some false dragon army take her down. No way. Um, So uh, eventually some people get free of the army so that they can run to the cave because they know Loghain's free. They got to help the Aes Sedai. But while they're struggling to get there, who walks in to Loghain's cave other than Moiraine Sedai? So... Obviously, she she and she wants to talk to him. Um, she she's really confident, and she walks in and has this pretty wonderful exchange with Logan and questions like, "Why should I believe that you're the dragon?" Mm-hmm. Um, and as he's talking and talking about the voices. I just wanted to say, like, Moraine's face is so priceless. Like, you can read it. Just, like, she looks gleeful when he starts talking about the voices. Because she knows. And when he says that's what the pattern wants, she's just, like, you can see the the palpable relief that she does no longer believe that he could be the dragon. Um, And then I know you wanted to talk about this wonderful sound bite that I'll play. But you can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she he's Logan is saying that how you know the pattern wants him to is pushing him, you know, to in this particular direction. And Moraine retorts that the pattern doesn't want anything, it's people who want. Um, the pattern is incapable of of desire. And he says, 
to her, what do you want? What do you want? I want you to know that the voices in your head, those are the whispers of madness. And as strong as you are, your power is a trickle. It's a pinprick of candlelight against the raging sun that will be the dragon reborn. And so the, the great thing about <laughs> the great thing about this line, at least for me, it's just hilarious. Like just the way she just diminishes him. Um oh and <laughs> and like basically eviscerates him and like basically tells him that he has a micro penis compared to <laughs> Compared to the dragon reborn. Oh my god. Yeah. The choice of words. <laughs> I I want to know who yeah. the writer's room finalized it's pretty great. this line. It was She's basically like, all of this is cute, but it's pretty much like it's pretty much small dick energy compared to the dragon reborn. Like what what's going on here? <laughs> it's yeah. pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Oh, it. And it's so great, too, because she can see that uh, the other eyes that I are stirring. So she uses this momentary right. distraction right. to give them a moment to regain their power. And they start trying to uh, reinforce the shield around him. And what I like is that uh, it's pretty evident that now it's harder to shield a man who's already holding the one power um, as they struggle. So, as the Aes Sedai try to reinforce the shield on Loghain, who's struggling against it, uh, everyone from the forest battle finally catches up. They run into the cave, uh, including Lan and Nenave, and Stepin. And Stepin visually confirms that his Aes Sedai is dead, and he is obviously in some sort of rage. And he runs forward with his double axes like a moron. <laughs> And just, <laughs> you know, wheels them, crashes them into the shield. And this is the opening apparently Loghain needs. You see uh, the male part of the one power grab on to this punctured, the punctured, the, the axes that are puncturing the shield. And it escapes and he breaks basically the axes into shrapnel that just fly into the crowd and eviscerate everyone. And uh, you see an axe, literally like an axe handle go into Moraine's gut. And more importantly, I think like uh, the most concerning is that Lan's throat gets cut and he's literally choking on his own blood. It's just pouring out into the floor of the cavern. Yeah, it's like bleeding yeah. out from his jugular. Basically, it's like, it's like yeah, it out was of his like neck. some Kill Bill stuff <laughs> happening. You're like, yeah. What did, I mean, what did you before you go any further? Like, what did you think when this happened? Oh, I was like, holy shit! That was amazing. I like, know. What the fuck is I going mean, on? Yeah, I, I guess it's yeah. worth saying this isn't a spoiler of anything, but like this this whole setup is not in the books. So like everything is new to us. It's like, not in the it's books. It's all yeah. new to us. Um, right. So like this scene continues. There's more obviously that happens in the scene, but this was a point at which I thought like I was a like in the moment I was in the moment of the show, like I was absorbing mm -hmm. it because it's so riveting. 
But at the same time, I was thinking to myself, like, this is the beauty of the show is that it can give us brand new moments with these characters, you know, like that we haven't seen before that still fit within the story. It has the ability to do that, to, to, to surprise us, even though we already know what's going to happen, um, which is, I think, brilliant because that was brilliant television. The last 10 minutes of this episode were yeah. fantastic. Amazing. I know. And, and it is really exciting as a longtime fan not to know what to expect. Um so yeah. do, would you like to do the honors of describing this epic last scene of the of the episode? Oh <laughs> my god. Okay, so everyone <laughs> so everyone has been like these axes explode and like the shrapnel is just like strewn across the room and everyone's hit by something, you know, either a piece of the broken uh axe, metal, like the blade of the axe or the handle like moraine. Um, and the final piece of shrapnel is shown is shown like just barely missing Nynaeve and like is lodged into the wall next to her, next to her face. And so um, everyone's down, all the ice die down, all the waters are down, lands bleeding out on the fucking pavement or on the, the rock of the cave. And uh, meanwhile, Loghain is kind of gathering his power. You can see him like gathering some flows. He's about to do something. He's kind of like, he's kind of, it's the equivalent of like, stretching like stretching his muscles with the one power right um because he hasn't had a chance to to really wield it because he's been shielded all this time and so Nynaeve strides into the room and she sees that Lan is down and she's she's not having it like she's in shock she's she can't believe it she kneels down and she's she basically is um is rebuking the the moment and and denying the, the fact that it's happening she puts her hands on his neck and, and she says no she looks over at Loghain and she denies his existence and the fact that this has, ha has happened and he kind of makes eye contact with her and then she says no again and she looks back at Rand or I'm sorry at Lan rather and she just explodes with this huge um surge of the one power and she does like this group this area of effect heal which we I mean is something it's the greatest thing we've seen on the show by far um and she heals everyone in that room who has been affected by the by this uh, this shrapnel. Most importantly, she's healed Lan, and he is like none of it has ever happened. It's like nothing ever happened. She unfortunately cannot heal Karina because she was already dead. Um, but everyone else is then healed, and Logan is even. And when this happens, um, there's a very bright kind of light. It's a very bright uh, moment that occurs, and Logan delivers a line that is a recall back to the conversation that he. Uh, the the micro penis <laughs> conversation that he had with <laughs> with Moraine, <laughs> um, where he says, where she says that you know the the power of the dragon reborn will be as bright as the sun or something equivalent to that, and he had as a recall to that moment, and uh, and he's in shock from the moment, and that's when the Aes Sedai, um, kind of led by Leandrin, actually kind of regain their composure and they are able to to slam another shield back onto him by by linking together. Um, pretty fucking amazing. <laughs> Pretty fucking spectacular. Yeah, uh, the line is like a raging sun, and and one thing that was like so sun, interesting yeah. is um, they've they've said that men can't see women's weaves, so it must have been so powerful hmm. that he could literally feel it. You know, uh, I think so. There's okay. been a lot of discussion about that, and there are several things. Um, the the main crux, and this was from Sarah Nakamura herself. She says that he cannot see those weaves. What he's reacting to is the shockwave mm -hmm. of the event itself, which is fair, um, which is fair. And the way I see it is she's an untrained channeler who is 
literally at that moment channeling immense amounts of the one power, it is very likely that there is actually light emanating mm -hmm. from her body or somewhere. You know, it's very, you know what I mean? She doesn't know how to control this flow. She's just doing a thing. So the possibility of there, her actually manifesting an actual light in that moment is very possible. That's true. So uh, one thing you said that, uh, reminded me of something I, I forgot to mention before, which is before uh, the people, the rest of the people arrive in the cave, Leandrin is warned by Moraine, like you're holding too much of the one power. You're going to burn yourself out. And we do see like her mm. skin almost like glowing a little bit. Like, um, Yes. So that's yes. something else that we learned about the one power that you can, if you try to hold more than you can handle, you know, you could die or burn out your ability. Yeah. Um, and so to see Nanave hold this much and for Logan to be able to sense it is, you know, mind blowing. I, I literally, yeah. so the, I love the way this was directed and filmed also when Nanave's hair is standing on mm. the end. Yes. I, I literally yeah, it's fantastic. burst into tears. <laughs> like I burst into tears. <laughs> and I I didn't cry the second time I watched it, but the third time I cried again. I just like this scene is so fucking good. It's and so it's good. Not, yeah. No, so good. It was so and yeah. um yeah, I mean and, and then they they close out the episode on this. I mean, really powerful moment. So everyone's healed. The eyes that I get up and we see them form a circle. Um, Landron says, mm -hmm. quickly, give me your power, like make a circle so we can see how they can um, come together and share the power. And Leandrin is the one sort of like channeling everyone else's power. Leading it. Um, and the choreography for it, I really liked, especially like at the end after like you feel the power building and then all the eyes that I like lower their arms in an X, like a like a suck it like <laughs> like thing. And then yeah. like it's like they're sh channeling out of their vagina. They're just like shooting one power out. <laughs> Is there like, like yeah. a little hip thrust, like like kettlebell training or something. Yeah, that's true. And um, you know, it is e even though they all agree to do this, I I did see this like look on Moraine's face at the end that I think could be interpreted a number of ways. And while I yes. I think that Moraine's at a place where I don't think she thinks that he was the dragon reborn and they made a mistake. I don't think that, but I do think she questions maybe what they did just because Leandrin's so righteous about it. And she says, you know, something like mm -hmm. we'll take back that with uh, nature hath like, you know, does not want you to have or whatever. Um, yeah. And yeah. yeah, it was, it is a little disturbing in that part There's of like, like, Leandrin's delivery, even though he just killed all of them. So, you know, but it, it feels right not like justice necessarily. I don't know. Well, I think Leandrin has, I mean, because we see this in the very first scene of the show, like she gets mm -hmm. off on doing this thing. You know, she gets off on, on gentling men. Like it's more than just mm -hmm. her just doing her job for her. Um, so, so I think that is part of the disturbing aspect is like, it shouldn't be more, any more than just doing her job. Um, and I think another aspect is something that maybe we actually missed in the discussion, but earlier in the episode when, uh, Alana and Moraine are having their conversation, 
there's a lot of questions whether or not they should be doing this thing because she wonders if maybe they might gentle the dragon dragon reborn before he's able mm -hmm. to help them in the last battle um which i think is a very important concept that moraine that's the, what yeah. happens right before they uh they're interrupted by by Loghain trying to mm -hmm. escape the shield and that's a very important concept so i think that's what moraine is is thinking about is just content she doesn't think he's the dragon but she's contemplating the the prospect mm -hmm. of something like that occurring yeah agree and then i will just say another visual effect i loved is how they portrayed uh, Loghain being gentled and the one power sort of streaming yeah. from his lungs. The sound kind of drops out and mm. it's this very powerful sort of like silent agonizing moment and then we're left with him like whimpering on the floor. And crying. And yeah. crying, yeah. Like absolutely. in my mind it was like, oh, I feel like yeah. it was a woman you would feel like she would like howl or there'd be like an agonizing thing but mm. he's just like kind of softly crying so it's like extra sad. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, the end. So that concludes our spoiler-free segment. Uh, okay. Okay. Wait, there okay. More, hold, on, hold on. I got a few more points here. So I think like what's interesting about this final scene is like we see a few things that kind of offer some foreshadowing. Maybe we see like. Um, the chaos and turmoil surrounding the just the idea of a dragon that someone declares themselves the dragon what can happen the power mm -hmm. of just declaring that name right um this man has knelt a king to follow him and die literally die for him because the king of Gildan oh, yeah, is shown yeah, dead is at the end of that battle and so i think you know it's it's he's he's a character who's introduced and killed in the same episode but i think the narrative kind of um uh, echoes of something like that are pretty strong and showing like what the kind of power that the, the idea of the dragon mm -hmm. reborn holds in this world, you know, um, and what could happen. It's just a glimpse of that. So I think, I think they do a good job of kind of showing that. Yeah, too definitely. In this episode. Cool. So now that actually concludes our spoiler free episode breakdown, stay tuned. We're about to be joined by Tigrain for our spoiler filled segment. All right. Uh, so now that we're done with our episode breakdown, I did just want to talk about film craft for a few moments. Um, we talked a lot about the visual effects and we will continue that discussion in our spoiler segment. Um, but just a couple things that I'm hoping they improve upon as the show goes on. I mentioned that opening establishing shot of Giladon, uh, and I hope that they continue to show wider shots like that to make the world feel more expansive and not such a small-scale epic, which some of the reviews have said. Also, I think there's improvements to be made in the editing, um, particularly in like the dialogue scenes. In the Tuathon scenes in particular, um, as a nerd who is married to an editor, there's a certain style of cutting for comedy and a different one for drama. When you're cutting for drama, um, there's different types of cuts called LK, uh, L cuts and J cuts that are modern editing 
uh, techniques so that you're not just staying on the person who's speaking, like the camera's not just staying with them, but you'll cut over to see the non-speaker's reaction to emphasize emotion. Sometimes in the show, we're seeing more comedy style editing where we're just seeing like this person's talking, this person's talking, and it it keeps things a little punchy. Um, but it doesn't leave as much uh, room for emotion when you're being snappy like that. Uh, I mentioned the general color of the show, and I just hope maybe they tone it down a little bit to lean into realism. So that's my snarky, uh, nitpicky things for this episode and in general how the season's unfolding. And uh, moving on, we're going to bring on our... A uh, new counterpart to Grain, the missing daughter heir, the uh, best IEL I know, and the queen of Twitter. So welcome to <laughs> Brandland. No pressure. Oh my god, I'm sweating. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from here on out, the show will be full of spoilers, both for the TV series and for the full 14 book Wheel of Time series, as well as the prequel, New Spring. So if you haven't read them, get the fuck out. Uh, <laughs> we're ready to deep dive and, and have some fun. So to Green, tell us, what was your general reaction to episode four? Um, I was really, really happy. I was like crying for, I think, the last 15 minutes, I think, <laughs> <laughs> from like... When Land translated uh, Nynaeve's parents' last words, like, onward, I was just a mess. And, um, yeah, you guys were not available. So I was like, I don't know who to oh. talk to. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it was Thanksgiving. My, yes, yes, my yes. power was out. So, was like... Um, so, yeah, so I turned to Twitter and had a meltdown on Twitter, which they're always there for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I cry I was crying with you, just not at the same time, but <laughs> it was pretty powerful, powerful mm. stuff. Um since you you mentioned you turned to Twitter, your good old friend Twitter, um, what was the general sense of fans' reactions to this one? I mean, within the first few hours of the show airing, I would say it was like absolute mayhem like <laughs> I think it was like um everyone was saying they were crying everyone was just all caps lock um <laughs> everyone was like this is you know the greatest thing ever um there were just tweets that were like Nynaeve's name 40 times in a row like on a hashtag <laughs> um it was just like such an in incomprehensible like mess but of like joy and of also of like what just happened to me um so it was I mean I think it was really really positive and I think it was a fan favorite so far I saw a couple polls of what's your favorite episode and it was like overwhelmingly episode four so mm -hmm. um they're really taking it up a notch yeah I think um, one thing we didn't really touch on earlier that I, that's been on my mind is that for, for any new series, I feel like episode four is sort of the, the turning point. Like if you've got an initial 
interest in the show if people aren't hooked by episode four i think that's where audience retention is going to start like falling off you know so i'm glad that four was such like a uh, I hate the word clincher, but like just so fucking epic that mm-hmm. I, and I've seen at least from like my friends, the non book fans get electrified by this episode. Have you seen sort mm-hmm. of like any uh, reactions from like non book fans? Yeah, actually um, right before this, I was kind of killing time and watching a non book readers reaction video and um, the guy actually blew out his microphone as the Nynaeve scene happened. <laughs> he was screaming, like freaking out. Like first he was freaking out over Lan and he's like, everybody do something. <laughs> and then he started screaming over Nynaeve and it was just such a great, like pure reaction. Like, I don't know what they did with that episode, but it got people really like <laughs> amped up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I won't read this whole thing, but I did get a long text from my friend who's never read the books. I'm sure was sort of watching it because he knows how obsessed I am. But I love that he called it uh, the. He said, "I just watched the fourth episode of the Time Wheel Badass Magic Lady Show." <laughs> he said, "I'm glad I watched it because the first three didn't impress me much. I'm not a huge fan." of all the little kids with the nice eyebrows, but the magic exploding shit ladies are radical and their cool sex warriors are cool too. <laughs> I was like, thank you, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a feeling that was Kevin, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I did get um, text from like a few other people, honestly, just like unprompted. I haven't even talked to them about the show and they were like, episode four got me. And I think honestly, they're probably afraid to talk to me about the show because they weren't feeling it. You know, I only had one Virgo who hated it and was like very vocal, did not hold back. But, you know, and he said, you know, what? I, episode four was awesome. I'm going to stick with it. So it even got the Virgos. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. They're so difficult to please. So <laughs> cool. So uh, anything you want to spotlight in uh, the Twitter realm? Any any discussion? Good discussion tweets? Yeah, so there was one from uh, Mistress Dovey is her at handle. Um, and she said, Jesus fucking Christ, I need to be in Alana Ivan Maxim's bed immediately. <laughs> and then she goes, we got our bisexual polyamorous warders. I am freaking out, literally sobbing for this polyam representation. Light Illumine you, Rafe Judkins. Fuck I yes. Was great. So good. So good. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, that was really nice. It always brings, like, makes me a little emotional to see people um, enjoying all the representation. So that was really nice to see. Um, and then I have a great insight about the Nynaeve scene from a t- Tyrannosaurus? Tyrannosaurus? They have it spelled weird, but anyways. Um, I just thought you couldn't say that word. <laughs> no, I can say it. I think it's like a play on their name, Tyrannosaurus. Oh, oh okay. Tyrannosaurus. Okay. Yeah. Zoe <laughs> no, does know dinosaurs. <laughs> I can read, guys. Um, so they said, also, while I'm still having thoughts, I think it's important to note Nynaeve healed everyone in that moment very explicitly. This was not just about Lan. 
And though the land 90 vibes were exquisite, I don't deny that. But I fully believe her healer's instincts took her to the most critically wounded person and she healed all of them completely and unconditionally because that's what Nynaeve does. That's what Nynaeve is. And it was just so, so clenches this much. Um, so I liked that because I do think that was pretty true to Nynaeve's character in that scene yeah. to do that. That's a good point. I like that too. For sure, that's a good uh, a good point to call out about her character, for sure. Yeah, she definitely could have like left Leandrin out, and she didn't, so. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so those were the, the two I picked out, unless you want me to go into the, uh, the funny one from Edward. <laughs> <laughs> um, before Edward, I, since we're already talking about the, the healing scene, and we haven't talked about it with spoilers... Um, I'm just curious because, I mean, one, there, we did speculate in episode three, like, oh, is Nanave about to channel? Like, when is she going to channel for the first time? Because there's so far, like, not been anything to indicate that she could um, until this moment. But obviously, we know in the book series, she's the one to later heal Logan. So I think this sets up like a very uh I don't know, like a, a different dynamic that he's introduced to her in, in this way. And she's also present for his gentling. Um, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I love I that know. it's going to come full circle and get back to that scene eventually where she actually heals him. I think it's, it's so perfect that she actually encounters him this early on. So, yeah, it's pretty mm -hmm. cool. Mm -hmm. Well done, Rafe. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Yeah, it. I mean, I've seen some reviews that have said like how ironic that the thing to like really bring people into the series is something that is not in the books, which is also interesting. And and book fans seem to be wholeheartedly embracing it. I'm sure there's people on Facebook who are not, but whatever. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, I it. think I think that's an interesting point too. And I I'm not. Uh, I think that some people could wield that point as kind of like a. Um, something maybe against the books or something kind of like divisive, but I think it makes sense. I, this is like, this isn't a book. This is an adaptation of books. So it needs its own things to solidify it. You know, I, I, I doubt that Robert Jordan was writing these books thinking like, well, one day they're going to make a show about this, you know, and, and this is what it should look like. He was just mm -hmm. describing the scenes in, in the way that like works best for that medium. And so it doesn't surprise me that the show would have to, to do its own work to find the scenes that work best for this medium, you know? Um, and I'm glad that we're able to get to reap the benefits of that for sure. I also think we can all acknowledge that Robert Jordan focused on what he was comfortable with, <laughs> yeah. which was like dresses and channeling <laughs> and, and bosoms <laughs> and not like, <laughs> deep emotional moments like the land and I need thing. So, yeah. I mean, there was definitely some things that, you know, needed to go in and be adapted. And, um, I'm super glad they're, they're doing it. Yeah. 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 They're doing the work of building this, like get to know you and chemistry between them where, you know, I think even though people generally like bought the relationship, I think like shipped them in the book successfully, we don't really get this much development, you know, 
Mm-hmm. It jumps r- immediate into like weird tension. Like we both know we want this, and it's like, okay, wait, wait, what happened before this? Right? Like, just the right. What were you doing like, off screen right. that whole time? <laughs> in the in the books, like it would be the equivalent of like the opening of this episode where Landon and Eve exchange a glance, and then that's it. And then later, <laughs> you're like, oh, they're in love now. I did. I'm just <laughs> Robert Jordan's courting rituals, just glancing yeah. at women and hoping <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Uh, oh my god. Cool. Uh, so yeah, s- speaking of channeling, I wanted to talk about kind of like since we haven't had this g- discussion like without spoilers, the the what we see like from the channeling of this particular episode kind of expands upon a few things. Um like for example, um like I know I mentioned before that I didn't love like moraine's movements in episode one um i wasn't really into it they're kind of like intense like a little too intense for me um but i like and it, part of that for me was knowing that that then has to be maintained you know through the course of the series like that's setting a precedent for what channeling looks like um and part of my issue with that is like is that going to happen for everyone is this is that going to make it like look a particular way um i.e cheesy at least for me um and so in this episode, we saw Logan channeling without movement, without movement, and we also saw Nynaeve channeling without movement. Um, and if we think back to episode three, um, Egwene does it without movement. And I think this is a, a really interesting kind of detail that something that I would catch because I was looking for it um, that suggests like the kind of like uh, the institution of the tower and what that means as a whole. Um, and so much as these these Aes Sedai are learning these weaves and they have to perform them in a certain way, whereas these the wilders don't have that. They have that like um, they're uninhibited in that in that particular way. Mm-hmm. And so these are small details that I really appreciate. Um, obviously, no one's talking about this on the show, but it's something that I think as a book reader, like I know the lore and I know like how, how these things work. So I'm really curious about how closely they're adhering to those things. Um, that stuff is actually really important to me in terms of continuity. Um, so I'm curious to see how they expand upon that as the show progresses. I did see a comment from um, Sarah that the postures for each weave, like when they um, do the shielding together, like that's Mm. like a set posture they're coached through. So I wonder if when we get into the tower scenes where like Egwene is going through her, her novice hood, um, Mm. If they'll try and teach her those postures and she'll be like, but I don't need it. <laughs> and then it'll be Yeah, like, oh. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think that'll be interesting. And I think that's mm-hmm. exactly what I was getting at is kind of like mm-hmm. how that plays into like um, the narrative of, of what channeling is and how, how they learn mm-hmm. those weaves. Um, and also, I think, Jay, we were talking about earlier, like the, the scene where they're shielding Logan. There's a, there's a, a kind of a connection and a synchronicity to the movements in that, in that yes. particular movement, too. Um, which I think is probably also um, implemented by the movement coach or the movement supervisor or whatever. Um, so yeah, those things are, are really intriguing to me. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going um, to say, to expand on that, I mean, I think they're obviously putting stakes in the ground, and I just I find the irony funny because we know in the books when Wilders go to the tower, they're just like they're given so much shit and they're judged, you know, Mm -hmm. but this is actually a huge advantage. If you don't have to move your hands to channel, as we've seen by the cold open of episode two, where Eamon Valdez cut this yellow, uh, Aja Aes Sedai's hands off. 
Exactly. Um, if she had been a wilder, she could just channel her way out of it. She didn't and get it. Exactly. It, it goes back to a discussion we had with uh, Micah, the wandering channeler at Twitter time, um, about accessibility as well. And the idea mm-hmm. that you would have to have hands or be able to do these movements to channel is um, in itself a block, you know, mm-hmm. but not actually uh, beholden to the physics of the world. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought that was that is interesting. True. No, that's a really good point. I mean, obviously, there's also like the the foreshadowing of Rand losing his hand. Um, and, oh yeah, yeah. Right? So I mean, I wonder if he'll move his hands when he channels. You know, like right. Um, I don't think he will. He's yeah. a wilder. Yeah, I don't think he will. Yeah. yeah. I I will say, and this is just my prediction. I think that Egwene will learn the movements and use her hands because I think in that scene it was her not moving her hands is more just like, I think the hands in itself are a a way to focus the power, just the way like Moraine uses that like blue gem she has to focus the power and I, and did as she was a novice. So I think in that like small moment when Egwene channels, it's not necessary, but I do think she'll learn the proper way. I think she will too. I think that's just Egwene's character. Yeah. That's just her character. Yeah. And she hasn't channeled, obviously, like, as much as uh, Neneve. Neneve, like, it's obvious how that block would come into place after this incredible scene, you know, Mm -hmm. of her being, like, her screaming no in a rage channeling for the first time. Yeah. That's, like, a pretty good block origin story, more so than, like, healing the, you know, Egwene's fever. I think that the scene also harkens back to a moment in episode one when she, that guy dies in her arms after the Trolloc attack. That old dude who looks mm. who looks like Senbui but isn't. It harkens yes. back to that very moment because um, he dies and she looks. She, there's a moment of her looking helpless and like upset about the situation because she she can't do anything. Um, so I think I think she's also thinking about that in addition to like this man that she is potentially in love with. You know, obviously mm-hmm. in that moment. Yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. That's true. That does connect. Um, what else? Uh, oh yeah, I want to talk about Leandrin as well. <laughs> all right, I, I'll talk about Leandrin all day. Uh, <laughs> by the way, uh, yeah. all my non-book fan friends are just obsessed with Leandrin. Like they're here for yeah. Leandrin all the way. So that's what I was gonna say. Like we we know Leandrin. We know what she's about. We think we know what she's about, right? But I fucking love her. Actually, I'm like into <laughs> like into her, <laughs> and I don't want to yeah. be like I'm like I don't want to like her, but. But I do, you know, um, yeah. so I'm really I think that's really compelling and really interesting. that They were able to pull that off. I'm curious to see how that how that plays out. Yeah. Um, over the next season or two. Yeah, totally. Um, to green, any any spoiler discussions you want to talk about? Or I know you mentioned Eddie's tweet earlier. I don't know if that's uh, <laughs> something you want to touch on. No, we can skip that. Uh, oh. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember what it was. It was about the um, weekly releases and how much he liked them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my yeah. god! Just read it. You have to read All it. Right, fine, fine, fine. Okay. So he said, "I am so glad the Wheel of Time went with a mostly week weekly format. Like, give us a big thrust at the beginning and then make us beg for it over and over. Dear light, <laughs> give me more." <laughs> Sorry, Twitter of time. Yes, I do hate myself. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. Um, But I do think, I mean, there is a point behind this, which is that 
um, the weekly releases are letting people talk. I fully admit I was against the weekly releases, so <gasps> I will I will take it back. I just wanted to watch it all at once. Um, <laughs> so short-sighted and selfish. <laughs> well, and I, you know, when I watched The Witcher, though, um, I wouldn't have kept watching that if it was weekly. So, like, I felt like in some situations there was, like, an advantage mm. of um, letting people actually get acclimated to the world before, you know, expecting yeah. them to tune back in. but. The way they do it with the first three episodes, I think, does that. And then you get kind of mm-hmm. the, the weekly after that. works really well. Yeah. I thought that was very wise, the way they did that, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah, yeah. That is a good point. Because um, that way, week two, people are getting this epic episode four right off the bat. So they have a reason to come back, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. Any other highlights from Twitter? Um, that's pretty much it. Did you guys discuss Rafe's thing at all? No. His Q and A. No. Hit us up. Um. So someone asked him about um why uh the change was made to the dragon potentially being a woman, um because mm-hmm. you know people are having a rough time with that. And um, he said the change we made was not just with the fact that a woman could be the dragon. The core change we made was that people are not 100% convinced that these 3,000-year-old prophecies are 100% accurate. And he goes, I think it feels a little bit more true to the world. And you can see the characters questioning the prophecies and the details of it much more in the show than the books. Um, And he goes, it seems quite trusting for the Aes Sedai who trusts no one, and especially Moraine who trusts less than no one to believe with 100% certainty anything that was written thousands of years ago. So I thought that was some good insight on that because um, that's been a huge debate. And I actually kind of agree with him. I don't think it ever made a ton of sense. I mean, the way the prophecies are written in general leaves so much open to interpretation that I would feel someone like Moraine would want to check their bases and double check that they have the right people. So um, that was a nice little tidbit from his Q and A. He answered a lot more stuff too. That's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah, we'll have to touch back on the Q and A. Um, that made me think you had sent me a tweet earlier um, from Cass Wamondragorin. If mm-hmm. you want to read it, because I think that plays yeah. into while we're talking about the prophecy. Yeah. So um, she said. Now, the only problem is the heartbreak that'll ensue when the real Dragon Reborn is revealed. My wife is now convinced Nynaeve is the Dragon Reborn. She's ecstatic that a woman with her own skin tone is the hero for once. I love the show and I'm grateful for the representation, but the optics of leading people to think a woman of color is the hero just to take it away and reveal it's a white dude isn't great. I do trust Rafe and I know Nynaeve will do incredible things. It'll still be a disappointment though. Um, so again, that's like an advantage a book reader has over Mm. a viewer, um, is that we kind of know everyone gets a great arc and I am a little bit concerned when I read this that I was like, oh my gosh, the, the people who haven't read the books aren't going to know how amazing her arc is. So I'm really curious to see if they'll account for these feelings. Yeah. Right, right. It's kind of like, well, I, I couldn't help but think of parallels to Game of Thrones where 
we're set up to think Daenerys is going to be something special, you know, and mm. people naming their children oh, Daenerys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, <laughs> at least in this one, we know she gets a good arc, period. And I'm sure Rafe is even expanding on it, you know. Um, whereas, you know, she's not going <laughs> to go crazy and sleep with her cousin and like kill everyone. So uh, hopefully they can live with it. But uh, but yeah, I do think it is interesting that they're they are gonna inevitably set some people up for disappointment by creating mm-hmm. this mystery around who the dragon is. But I I still think there'll be payoffs for the characters, so there shouldn't be regrets in investing in them. I, I would agree with that. Colin? I think that's yeah. I think that was that was the point in the tweet. I think is actually really apt. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I think that also that knowing. Fortunately, knowing the story, I think that there are still like so many payoffs, like in this in the tale, that it's that it'll be all right. Um, but it's not a bad it's not a bad point for sure. Yeah, I mm-hmm. mean, as a book reader, I actually liked Gwen <laughs> and Nynaeve's arcs more, like the most. Yeah. So um, to me, it's great. But obviously, not everyone's going to know that, so it's a little right. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they how they handle that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we haven't talked about critical responses, so I did just want to insert a couple of reviews that apply to this discussion before we, uh, talk about our closing thoughts. But, uh, while we're on the subject, inverse.com, the headline is the wheel of time is better than Game of Thrones for one important reason. Uh, the women in Game of Thrones were used as window dressing for drama. Men suffered at the hands of gruesome violence and narrative upheaval as well, but still, the women of the world suffered emotional turmoil and physical and sexual abuse for the sake of exploited TV. Unlike Game of Thrones, The Wheel of Time takes it a step further. In adapting author Robert uh, Jordan's 14-book universe from page to screen, the new Amazon series elevates its already strong female characters in a way that allows them to be more than the foil to their male counterparts. It says, who runs the world? Girls. Um, But it talks about how they're fully fleshed out, given a greater sense of community, and for such powerful characters that work in an established structure, power structure, um, they are very much individual, solitary individuals in the Wheel of Time. So Mm -hmm. I just really liked that distinction, um, especially since a lot of the early reviews came out and said, uh, this isn't the next Game of Thrones from a lot of, uh, I think, male critics who just wanted more Game of Thrones. And mm-hmm. so talking about the inclusion and the intersectionality and how empowered these female characters are, I think, is like really exciting. And we really see it come full force in this episode as the world expands and yeah. as we see Nynaeve's abilities blossom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the other, uh, my just closing, <laughs> closing remark, the other uh, review that I liked was from uh, Decider. It says, the wheel of time. We need to talk about Alana and her warders being in a throuple. Um, and they just said, you know, it's honestly refreshing to watch a prestige fantasy series that is profoundly sex positive. Whether we're talking about Egwene and Rand getting it on in a healthy, realistic way or the isodized acceptance of polyamory. Uh, so far, sex on the Wheel of Time has been consensual and fun. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's like another really important distinction for the, the genre and for the yeah. show. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, Colin, I know you have uh, additional remarks now that we're in the, the spoiler zone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, like, I, I kind of mentioned this one before, but the, like, the arc, the Matt and Rand arc, I'm really enjoying um, <clears throat> the way that they've kind of subverted um, the viewer's kind of expectations. Um, obviously, there's a strong, uh, there could be a strong um, inference that Matt is the Dragon Reborn, the way they're playing kind of like the sickness from the dagger against like what we see with Loghain. Um, I think that was a wise a wise decision. Um, but also, like I said before, that it opens up this this space where we get to see Rand be we get to see Rand be a human before he becomes a raging despot, which I think is really important. So mm-hmm. that's why I like that a lot because I think that's a really important thing to see. We need to see Rand be a human being and then be transformed by this, this new power, this new kind of responsibility. Um, and I think that the way that they've kind of tweaked these arcs is allowing for more of that, which I really appreciate. Um, another thing, and this is actually kind of a criticism. I'm not sure, you know, Brandon, Brandon Sanderson, was not on board with Layla Ibarra being murked by no, by he wasn't. Parent. He was not on board with that, and he actually recommended, I guess, Master Luan as as a yeah. as a substitute. And I don't disagree with him, honestly. Like, I I don't know at least like where we're at with this episode, and we've already stated that this was that their arc, the Egwene Perrin arc, was the weakest of this episode. Um. I'm curious about how they're going to kind of not necessarily rectify, but like handle that, that space. And I don't know if he necessarily needed to kill Layla. I'm not convinced yet quite yet. Yeah. I think there needs to be more story around Layla. Like we need to learn more. Um, Yeah. I, or if I guess we need to know if there was more of a reason plot wise. Uh, I mean, if there's not, then like I would agree with you. I think we're we're waiting for that. Yeah, because I think we've the the dark friend theory has been debunked. She was not a dark friend. Oh, really? Um, it's been debunked. Yeah. Yeah. She R- Rafe said no. She confirmed it on Twitter today. Oh. Um, as Sarah part, Nakamura did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and Helena Westerman, the actress, did as well. Mm. Um, mm. And they did Just, have they did heavily hint that there was a reason they kept it lila and that it's gonna pay off later there was kind of heavy hinting in in what they were saying so um i hope so (laughs) yeah yeah because i'm not i mean i want them to and i I trust them but at this point Mm -hmm. i'm not convinced that it needed to be i can understand why pyrin would need to you know kill someone Mm -hmm. i understand that part um but i don't know that it needs to be her yet i'm not convinced quite yet I, um, I agree. I think the Master Luhan would have been a lot better, and I think that was a really good note from Brandon. Um, but clearly, they must have something they're trying to do there. <laughs> yeah, so we'll see. That's another one they're kind of like, they're going to have to show us, they're going to have to make payoff, I think. Um, yeah, and I I mean, did they confirm whether or not like the character had miscarried, if that was going on? Because I just wanted to know why she was so unhappy and so like angry at the beginning yeah. yeah yeah no i don't believe so um i don't think they said anything about that okay that i've seen well that will be interesting because i think Perrin and Egwene. um i i think that they're probably going to have a bigger role in the next episode as well as um i think we're well okay let's talk about predictions for the next episode 
Um, any any ideas? <laughs> yes. Okay. So I think that. <laughs> yes. So, th- okay. So I texted you guys after we, after we all watched mm-hmm. the show, and one of the things I said was the only thing that was missing from this episode was Peyton Fane. We have mm-hmm. not seen him yet, and he has to be in the next episode. Like he has to be, or it's going to be a problem narratively. Um, I think it, it'll be a hard thing to dig themselves out of if he's not in the next episode um, in a significant way. I think he's going to show up in Matt and Rand's arc. Um, I think that would make the most sense. Um, and we missed him because they didn't go to Berylin, which is when we the first time we see him outside of the two rivers. Mm-hmm. The next time would be Camelin. So since we're not going to Camelin, I don't know how it's going to happen, but they got to put him in the next episode somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really important. Um, I think also um, we need to amp up the Egwene Pirin arc. We, like Pirin's got to wolf the fuck out somehow. Like that needs to happen. Um, <laughs> I think I think we need something more than just him being broody about his dead wife that he murdered. You know, like mm. we need something else. You know, I mean, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to diminish that situation, but it does yeah. need to happen. <laughs> know, you know? I, know, I know, it's just funny the way you said it. Um, <laughs> according to IMDb, I don't think Pat on Fane comes back till episode seven and eight. All right, we'll see. <laughs> we'll, well see what happens. Know, everyone on Twitter is like tracking this whistle they keep hearing in certain scenes. Yes. And there's like mm, arguments yes. over if a whistle noise they hear is Pat and Fane or not. Well, the, <laughs> so, the, only one, yeah. the only one I remember is the one in Shadow Logoth in well, episode two. Well, apparently there was one in this last episode, but really? everyone's arguing over if it was a Pat and whistle or it was a different whistle. So. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to reluctantly watch the episode again. Be, <laughs> no. That would be horrible, but... Yeah, that'll be tough for you, I'm sure. <laughs> wow, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't catch that. Um, um well, another the, thing. I have one more okay. thing. Sorry. Okay, go. So, Steppen's um, axe shrapnel hits everyone in the room, except Nynaeve. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that's chance or is that Taviran, mm. and whether or not that's going to come back. Because I remember in the first episode, Moraine and. Ner- and Lan are having that conversation. She's like for Taviran and the like, two rivers. And and so now it's like, okay, well, which one isn't Taviran? Or are they just missing missing one? Right. Also, that line annoyed me. Like, how do they know? How do I, they I know agree. that early? Same. Yeah. Same. Same. That was yeah. Um episode, That's weird. I feel like if, yeah. if people knew that, they'd be flocking to the two rivers to figure out what the fuck was going on. And some Browns would at least. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, don't know. I don't know. Um the next episode is called Blood Calls Blood. The description says Perrin and Egwene run into familiar faces. I think we said it's going to be the White Cloaks, probably. Uh, Matt faces the darkness in himself. And Egwene faces the most powerful... Oh, wait, no, I skipped ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Matt mm-hmm. and see strange ones. What do you think the strange ones are? I think it's um, Balzamut again. Mm. I think it's Loyal. And I think it's hope. I mean, I guess I was hoping Pat and Fane in the his vagabond mm. get up, mm-hmm. but maybe that's maybe it's not mm. that. I hope it's Ogier. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah, I think I think it's definitely loyal. I think they can hint at Balzamon, Strange Face, um, and you could pull off Pat and Fane. Um, I think metaphorically and physically, because he's he's unrecognizable when they see him outside of the Two Rivers for the first time. They don't even really recognize who he is. Yeah, for a second, you know. Isn't that title from a uh, Pat and Fane chapter and the yes. too? When so that exactly. So Blood Calls Blood is from that quote that was mm-hmm. scrawled on the wall mm-hmm. that um, that Viren kind of transcribed. 
Yeah. Um, so that's heavily hinting at at Pat and Fane, but mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I we're halfway through the season, which is wild. Mm-hmm. It's sad. <laughs> oh no, it is sad. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. This has been Randland season three, episode two. <laughs> Tune in next week, uh, where we'll be reviewing episode five, Blood Calls Blood. Have a good night. Bye.